Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. People will sometimes say, okay, if Christianity posits this good God who is completely good, then why is there evil in the world? Did he not make everything? Were there some things he didn't make? Did he decide to make some evil things to spice up the world? Like, why is there evil? Why do bad things happen to people? The early church had an answer for this, and this gets articulated in lots of different places, but one of them is by the great Saint Athanasius. And what he says about this question of whether God made evil and why, he says, the truth of the church's theology must be manifest. That evil has not from the beginning been with God or in God, nor has any substantive existence, but that men, in default of the vision of good, began to devise and imagine for themselves what was not, after their own pleasure. In the late 20th century, it kind of became fashionable to imagine that God did not create everything out of nothing, that God kind of arrived on the scene, and there was some broken crockery and some old springs and some chewing gum and some ketchup, and he was like, all right, I'm going I'm to MacGyver this situation. I'm going to put all this stuff together and create this creation. This kind of comes from a Platonic, kind of Plato-style reading of the Old Testament, in which we see the Spirit hovering over the waters, we see this chaos um, over which God is presiding. But it, it's really a misunderstanding of Hebrew theology and uh, this 20th century version where God, like, jerry-rigs the world. Um, that has nothing to do with early Christian theology. So for the early church, God created everything. There is nothing that pre-existed God. Nothing was here when God showed up. There was not a time when God was not. God is eternal, and everything else is temporal. So God creates everything. So if God creates everything, God is totally good. Why is there evil in the world? Athanasius says, there was no evil in God. There was no evil with God. Evil and God totally foreign to one another. And he says evil didn't have a substantive existence. So what he means by this is what gets kind of refined by people like Augustine, John Chrysostom, is, uh, is this idea that evil is a privation of the good. Sounds like highfalutin theological language. But what this really means is that evil is not an actual thing. There is no evil thing. So if you watch uh, a movie where there's a personification of evil, it might be this like, like black cloud that's rolling along the streets or some sort of like green miasma of evil that suddenly enters into someone and takes them over. And the early church would say, that's a silly fiction. Might work for a horror film, but it's not reality. Evil is not an actual positive thing. So rather than being a creepy green cloud, evil is a state that one can fall into. So um, Augustine later in his book, The Enchiridion, talks about this. He says that if you have a wound in your flesh, if you have a cut on your arm, when it heals, that doesn't mean it jumps off your arm and onto somebody else's arm, and now they have a cut. 
There is no cut independent of the arm. The cut is just a state of the arm. The arm is wounded. The, the arm has this corruption. And the healing of the corruption means that thing goes away. But it doesn't have any existence independent from the arm. You destroy the arm, you've destroyed the cut too. There is no cut separate from the thing that it's a cut in. Hunger is also a state. So if you are ravenous, you have a giant sandwich, that doesn't mean the hunger jumps out of your stomach and into somebody else's stomach and now they're hungry. It just means that you are in this state of hunger, you solved it with a sandwich, and you're no longer in the state of hunger. So there is no objective reality of evil as this object which is somewhere in the universe. That doesn't exist according to the early church. So that solves this kind of first objection, why would a good God create evil? The early church would say he didn't. It's just everything that he created is good. He only created good things. So in Genesis, when we see God creating the world, he creates plants, they're good. He creates the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, they're good. He creates light, it's good. Everything taken together, he declares very good. So he doesn't create anything bad. And evil is not a positive thing that has existence, it's just the absence of the good. It's when goodness has been pushed away to some degree in the creation. So if you think about light, light is actually a physical object. There are physicists who can isolate a single particle of light, a single photon. They can examine it, they can think about how interesting it is that sometimes it acts like a particle and sometimes it acts like a wave. But it's like a real, physical, tangible thing. Darkness is not. There is no dark particle. There is no, there might be dark matter in the universe or whatever, that's something completely different. But when you walk into a room and the lights are off, it's not because the room is filled with darkness particles. There's no such thing. When we say darkness, what we mean is a privation of light, the absence of light. Light has not entered that space, or light has been moved away from that space, out of that space. You turn on the lights, and suddenly, there is no more darkness. Not because the physical object of darkness has been banished from the room by the physical object of light, one pushes the other out, but because darkness is literally just a description of when there is no light. Once there's light, there's light. There's no battle between darktons and photons. It's just that the photons enter and there is light. Evil for the early church was exactly the same. When evil comes into contact with good, evil just disappears. Because evil is just the absence of good, the privation of good. So at the first Easter, when Christ enters into the tomb, when Christ enters into death, he is the fullness of life. And when the fullness of life and death come in contact, there's just no more death. So it's not like this epic battle where they are fighting it out, they're duking it out for all these rounds, and finally, like, after this hard battle, Christ finally strikes death in this really impressive way, and death goes down for the count. No, like, any time life encounters death, the fullness of life, Christ encounters death, it's just gone, because he fills that space. Anytime light encounters darkness, it's just gone, because light fills that space. And this is the description of evil for the church fathers. It's not this powerful, universal, absolute force. It is just when goodness has been pushed away. But why, we may ask, does goodness get pushed away? Why are there even these pockets where there is no goodness? Athanasius says, Men, 
by which obviously he means men, women, children, everybody, in default of the vision of good, began to devise and imagine for themselves what was not, after their own pleasure. And what he means by this is that it is beings, it is the creations of God, who are able to kind of create these pockets of darkness in the creation, who are are able to push away goodness. This is said also in the writings of John Chrysostom, another great writer of the early church. This is from his 59th homily on Matthew. He's asking, why did God make evil people? Or why did did God make evil nature? And he says, he didn't. He made all people good. Evil, he says, is nothing else than disobedience to God. It is knowing the will of God, knowing the nature of God, and choosing the opposite. So the nature of God involves goodness. God is love. God is peaceful. God is joyous. God is radiant with light. God is beauty. God is truth. God is justice. All these things that we see as goods in the world, these are all actually attributes of God or or ways that we kind of experience the unified nature of God in disparate ways. So evil is pushing all these things away. And when you push away something like life or justice or goodness or love, the opposite that you have is not a different way of doing things. It's, you know, also powerful, also interesting. No, it's just death. It's non-existence. It is selfishness. It is horror. It is hate. It is sadness. Like, the opposite of God are not sort of like other goods that you can value instead of God. It's just nothingness, non-being. And evil occurs when we have pushed away the signs of God's nature, when we have pushed away God's will and fight against God's will, when we say peace and joy and light and love and goodness and beauty and hope and charity, all these things, I don't want them. I want whatever the opposite is. And the opposite of God, who is the source of all life, who is the source of all being, is not an opposite God who's equally powerful. Instead, the opposite of the source of life, the source of being, is nothingness, is non-existence. And this is what we're choosing when we're choosing evil. So when Hitler or Stalin or whomever you want to think of as like worst guy ever, um, when they were making their plans, doing their evil deeds, it's not because they were possessed by some spiritual miasma of evil that kind of entered in through their nose and took over their brains. Instead, they rebelled against the nature of God. They rejected love. They rejected goodness. They rejected peace. They rejected life itself and chose death. They embraced the absence of God. They embraced the opposite of God. They embraced the kind of pure disobedience to God. In Deuteronomy, the Lord says, Today I set before you the path of life and the path of death. And he says, Choose life. Don't choose death. I don't I didn't set before you the path of death because it's this alternate path and you need to just kind of make your own choices, do your own thing. It has its own advantages. No, there's no advantage to the path of death. It is just non-being, non-existence, the absence of joy, the absence of light, the absence of love, the absence of goodness. And it's not as though God created the path of death or gave us the path of death as this like trap or trick or punishment or something, God is the path of life. 
everything that he created, in a sense, belongs to the path of life. The path of death is simply the absence of God, the absence of goodness, the absence of joy, the absence of light. And so why would God create a world in which we even could choose the path of death? We even could rebel against God? Well, I said it before, and I'll say it again. God's only goal for us is love. And love has to be given in freedom. So if you create a robot that acts as though it loves you, that's not love. That's just following a program. Love is always a free gift, a free choice. And so if you have the capacity to love God, you also have to have the capacity to reject God. Freedom is integral to our personhood. So any world in which one has the capacity to choose God involves the capacity to choose not God. Any world that in one which one has the capacity to choose the path of life would have to involve the choice to not choose the path of life. So the existence of evil in the world is really just an issue of choice, of will, of when human beings choose to embrace love and life or to embrace hatred and death. And that is what evil is. And now you might be saying, but didn't the early church believe in the devil, in the demons, in the unclean spirits? Were they just like, oh, those are metaphors, you know, let's just, uh, maybe we can learn something from, not at all. The early church completely acknowledged the presence of these evil beings, of the enemy, of the demons, and so forth. However, for the early church, and for all Christianity really, these are not the incarnation of evil. These are not beings who are created as evil or created for evil. In fact, they are exactly the opposite. They're created as ultra-good creatures. A contemporary of Irenaeus was the Greek philosopher Celsus, and Celsus was a huge critic of Christianity. He was a dedicated, ardent pagan, and he thought that Christians were ruining everything with their crazy new doctrines. Celsus says that Christians make some quite blasphemous errors is shown by this example of their other ignorance, which has similarly led them to depart from the true meaning of divine enigmas, whom they make a being opposed to God, the devil, and in the Hebrew tongue, Satanas, are the names which they give to the same being. So for Celsus, this idea of the devil, or of the demons, or whatever, it is this kind of immature understanding of religion. So in Roman religion, the gods were really like people writ large. They were kind of giant beings, and they had the capacity to do good or the capacity to do evil, and did both liberally. So a god might found a great city and protect the ruling family of that city, but then another god might come down and kidnap one of the members of that ruling family and do terrible things to them and cause a war and uh, cause another city to be pillaged. And the gods, kind of like people, did good stuff and bad stuff just depending on their will for their own reasons. There was nothing inherently good about the gods, nor anything inherently evil. 
And for Celsus, this was a divine enigma, that the gods were so grand and so powerful and so mighty and so awe-inspiring, and yet also cheated on their spouses with one another and got really drunk and lost their car keys and made mistakes and got angry and beat each other up. It's, it's just an enigma. You know, they're just, they're so magnificent and yet so flawed in this heroic, interesting way. Well, the Christians just said, you just created idols that look exactly like you. But Celsus would say, no, 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 it is this incredibly enigmatic, interesting, complex religious paradox. So for him to say that God is the source of all good and that God is pure goodness, that's not what God looks like, or that's not what any of the gods look like from a pagan perspective. There's not a God that is just the source of goodness in the Greek or Roman pantheons. If you ask Plato, it's a different story. But for your run-of-the-mill pagan on the street, that is a radical oversimplification of the nature of the divine, which is both good and bad. So Celsus imagined a Christianity in which you have God, who is good and the source of all good, and then you have the devil, who is evil and the source of all evil. And they're kind of locked in this combat. And eventually, through the sacrifice of God's son, he defeats the devil, but it's a really close call. Christians, writing against Celsus, origin of Alexandria in particular, would say, Clearly, you have never had a long conversation with a Christian, because that is not what we believe at all. So the devil was not created for evil. He was not created as the incarnation of evil or to be the source of evil. The devil was created for extreme good. There's a passage in the prophet Ezekiel, which is ostensibly written about the king of Tyre, a small coastal kingdom uh, near Judea. But from the earliest times, this passage has been read not about some random king of a small city about whom it would make absolutely no sense whatsoever, but about the enemy himself. Ezekiel says, With an anointed cherub as guardian, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, until iniquity was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And the guardian cherub drove you out from among the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So the way that Tertullian of Carthage, that Origen, others interpret this passage is that Tertullian would say, if this is about some human king, what was he doing on the mountain of God? Why was he guarded by a cherub? This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That instead, that the enemy was created as a good being to be in relation with goodness. But he grew tired of adoring the source of all that is good and began seeking his own adoration. So the enemy rebelled against God and created evil within himself. So it is not that he is the personification of evil, that he is evil incarnate. It is that just like you and me and Hitler and Stalin and anybody else who's ever chosen selfishness over love, death over life, anyone who has rejected God to embrace the opposites of God or the absence of God, he, with his will, 
turn to evil. And he continues to embrace selfishness, death, non-being, all the opposites of God. But he's not a rival God. God doesn't have to struggle against the enemy. In fact, to the extent that the enemy has any existence, that is still a gift of God. Irenaeus, our old friend, again says, The enemy made nothing. God made everything. We can choose to imitate him or to follow God. Those are our two choices. So early rabbinic Judaism has some interesting things to say about this. There is this concept of the Yetzer Hara. This comes, it means the evil inclination in English, and this comes from two passages in Genesis 6 and Genesis 8, in which we're told that there is an evil inclination in the heart of human beings. There is this inclination to turn away from the goodness of God, to turn away from the, the love of God, to rebel against God. And according to um, a great medieval rabbi, Rashi, the evil inclination stood outside of Adam and Eve in the garden. And it was the evil inclination that came to Eve as the serpent. And the serpent tempted Eve to turn away from God, to turn away from God's goodness and peace and joy and love and fullness and salvation, and to break this one commandment she had been given, to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after she ate of that fruit, the evil inclination entered into her, entered into Adam, entered into all of humanity. And so now that same voice of the tempter that once stood outside of Adam and Eve now stands within us. It is the evil inclination of the heart. So we know what it would look like to be an oasis of peace to other people, to be constantly selfless, to be constantly good, to be constantly kind, to take everything we don't need and give that to others. But then there's this voice that says, but you might need it someday. What if something really bad happens? You got to keep that for yourself. Look out for number one, protect your own interests. And we have this kind of battle within us. We know what it would look like to live a life of prayer, to say, okay, I'm going to reserve X amount of time just to build up my relationship with God every single day. And we wake up and we pull out a prayer book and we think, there was that email you didn't return last night and the dishwasher is not going to unload itself. And, you know, you're going to be late for work if you don't jump in the shower. You're going to have to take a really short shower. It's going to be kind of cold. You're not going to get to condition your hair, whatever it is. And that evil inclination draws us away from the peace of God, the goodness of God, the joy of God. It draws us away from the love of our brothers and sisters. It draws us away from being the people that we were created to be. And it draws us not only from spending time in prayer and giving charity to our neighbors, it draws us into wars with one another. It draws us into persecutions of other people. It draws us into hatred. It draws us into bigotry. It draws us into all sorts of things that are embracing death, evil, non-being, the absence of peace, the absence of love, the absence of light, the absence of beauty, the absence of joy. It is this evil inclination. In the Talmud which is the kind of great compendium of rabbinic wisdom and also the oral Torah, this great oral tradition of Judaism that was passed down from generation to generation from Mount Sinai on. 
In the Talmud, there is one rabbi who says that we have the Yetzirah, this evil inclination, this temptation to turn away from God. We have the enemy, the devil, and we have the angel of death, death himself. And these three are exactly the same thing. That temptation is the voice of the enemy. That temptation is the voice of death leading you on to death. The three are one. And yet, they are beings in a state of rebellion against God. They are beings created for goodness, just as you and I are, who are choosing the opposite of God rather than God, just as you and I often do. So what are we supposed to take away from all this? Ultimately, choose life. The fathers of the early church would say, the key to this is nepsis, is watchfulness. It is watching your thoughts, such that you get to this point where when you hear the voice of the evil inclination, you can say, "Uh uh-uh, thanks, but no thanks. And the way you do this is to just be conscious of every thought that occurs to you. And you kind of have like three mental shoeboxes. And one shoebox is labeled the evil one. One shoebox is labeled neutral. And one shoebox is labeled God the Holy Spirit. So a thought arises in your mind like, I'm hungry, maybe I'll make a sandwich. That goes into the neutral box. A thought arises in your mind like, um, oh my gosh, that person, she's walking by the side of the highway. She doesn't have shoes. I got to do something. I got to help somehow. I don't even know what to do. I'm afraid she looks completely bonkers, but I got to do something. That goes into the Holy Spirit box. And then you have another thought like um, you open social media, you see a post from someone and you think that moron, what are they thinking? How dare they? Where do you think that thought came from? That's from the evil one. And so you get to this point where by placing your thoughts in these three boxes, you start to recognize where they come from, such that when you have a neutral thought, you can take it or leave it, depending on whether or not it serves you. When you have a thought from the Holy Spirit, you embrace that as an incredible life-giving gift and you act immediately. And when you have a thought from the evil one, you can say, nope, not today. I am tossing that in the bad box and later that's going to be thrown out with the recycling. God did not create evil. God created all that is good. Evil is a matter of choosing to turn away from God, rebelling against God. We, as Christians, if in fact you are a Christian listening to this, uh, we, as Christians speaking for myself, um, our goal in life is to turn away from that evil inclination, and it is to turn towards love. This is primarily the love of God, because when we are filled with the love of God, we can take that and we can turn it outwards towards others. Not by wearing a t-shirt that has a cross on it or whatever, but by actually loving our neighbors. Loving the poor, loving the alone, loving the sick, loving prisoners and captives, loving those who hate us, loving those who curse us, loving our enemies, and not in a sense of like, oh, warm fuzzies, I feel good about these people, but loving them with our actions, actually being servants to those around us, being the hands of Christ, the feet of Christ 
in the world. So, next time you think, why did a good God create evil? Well, according to the early church, he did not. Sadly, you and I do. Thanks so much for joining me for a little bit of the history of Christianity. It's great being with you. 